Welcome to the third episode of our Thought Leadership podcast series, Growth Track, where we focus on growth opportunities across Asia. I'm Justine Moss, and thanks for your company. Now, Growth Track is SGX Group's new podcast series, where we bring together thought leaders from the global financial marketplace, as well as politics and economics. And we hope to promote greater understanding of markets today and also shape ideas for tomorrow. Well, today we hear from two experts who will share their thoughts on many things, including the appeal of Asia when it comes to global investors and the rise and increasing relevance of ESG and digital assets. Paul DeWin is Senior Managing Director, Head of Global Sales and Origination at SGX Group, and he drives the growth of SGX's international presence, including strengthening client engagements globally and overseeing SGX's specialized sales team in 10 cities. He also leads the strategy and delivery of the equity and debt capital market businesses. Joining him is Kim Stafford, a Managing Director and Global Head of Product Strategy at PIMCO. She's responsible for overseeing traditional strategies and alternatives, which include PIMCO's private strategies and hedge funds. Ms. Stafford joined PIMCO back in 2000. She's also a member of the firm's Executive Committee, and she also oversees the firm's or has overseen the firm's environmental, social and governance efforts. Welcome, Paul and Kim. Well, first, I really just wanted to say how thrilled I am to have you on this podcast with us. Having been with PIMCO for over 20 years across so many different functions and especially your time in Asia, no doubt your views are hugely insightful for the audience here and also so relevant for the major themes that drive our business. In Asia, a major theme is the speed and extent to which China's capital market is opening up and how to position for that. You've got first-hand experience with this, having been based out here. And then there are, just you mentioned, the major themes like ESG, digital assets, the increasing relevance of fixed income, investing for Asia. But then the market turns across pretty much all asset classes. Globalization hits reverse if we have to believe the noise coming out of Davos. And really, this has been unfolding in recent months in a pretty hectic way. What do you make up of this? And will it delay all the good work that we've all been doing on these themes that I just mentioned? Well, it's certainly a lot going on in markets. It's definitely been a bumpy ride. But the punchline is, no, it doesn't deter these longer lead strategic items whether that's the journey on ESG or crypto or China or globalization more broadly, I just think we have to expect probably a lot of volatility, whether it's geopolitical, whether it's inflationary, whether it's central bank policy, slower growth, all of those items that I think are going to make it really interesting for investors to think about for this kind of cyclical and secular period beyond. Kim, just talking about geopolitical uncertainty, increased volatility, rising interest rates, high inflation, is survival the new growth? <laughs> I do think that it's about surviving. For us, that means you have to take a really active orientation and a broad orientation, a global one. You have to have flexibility in terms of the asset allocation. So I think there's a lot of reasons to actually expand your aperture across public and private assets, across global markets, to make sure that you can both track opportunities where you see them, but also be insulated from downside risk that and volatility that we expect going forward. Well, for us in the exchanges space, volatility tends to be a, a good thing. And so we're in a way in a fortunate position there. It's very obvious, of course, when you think about trading volumes in a volatile market, 
But what I think is arguably more important is that in the more challenging environments is where you see the value of operating a reliable platform that is trusted by global market participants. And I think that is especially the case in Asia, where many markets are still pretty complicated to navigate for a variety of reasons. So then, Kim, SGX Group has originally been an equity-focused exchange, but now increasingly diversifying, having invested in FICC product suite. As head of product strategy at PIMCO, how do you think about diversification in such a powerful bond house like yourselves? Well, I guess we would think about it across the liquidity spectrum. So we aspire, obviously, to be a premier global fixed income manager, but really that is a much broader definition than I think many might expect. So everything from cash to credit to mortgages to emerging markets down the liquidity spectrum into things like quantitative strategies, hedge fund strategies, and then private equity style strategies. And for us, that means private credit and private real estate. So thinking about the entire liquidity spectrum, I think it gives us a unique vantage point because we see the world in a very broad way and we're able to credibly tell clients, hey, this is where we see value. And frankly, this is where we don't see value. And increasingly, we have a lot of clients coming to us to say, hey, we want to help. We give you discretion to be able to actively allocate into the places that you think are going to be providing the most attractive value going forward. And that's really the discussion that we're having with many clients. How can we bring them flexibility and help them navigate this difficult period? And that can manifest in a number of different ways across public and private markets. And of course, that includes Asia, the peel of Asia. Let's talk about that. Both of you have been based in Hong Kong previously. Are we headed now to move away from Singapore versus Hong Kong when it comes to competitiveness? Is it more going to be Singapore versus Shanghai? Paul? I don't really think about it in that way. Certainly, if I take a perspective of my clients, my market participants who are mostly in the West or increasingly in the West, I think still Asia as a whole represents a massive opportunity across the spectrum that includes China, that includes Southeast Asia increasingly. For all these markets to develop well in lockstep, I think is important. Yes, there are certain benefits given some of the geopolitical tensions that are playing out today. Can Singapore play an important role in that? Yes. Will Singapore, like Hong Kong and other centers here in the region, play a meaningful role in laying these highways of capital flows in and, and I guess increasingly out of China? Yes, of course. And we continue to do that for us. The ability to work on partnerships within China is incredibly important. So we continue to do that in a major way. But I don't really think about this as much as Singapore versus Hong Kong versus Shanghai. This is more how do we, in the East, increase the appeal of the capital markets as a whole for the global market participants. Kim, your thoughts on that? And also, have your perspectives changed since you moved to California? I would agree with Paul that, you know, I think that we look at the opportunity set in Asia as being really exciting from two main dimensions. One is as a bond house, we look at China, for example, second biggest bond market in the world. This is an area that we want to be active in and we think is an important part of the opportunity set for our clients. And we've seen a lot of adoption in Asia, but increasingly outside of Asia, which is really exciting to see in a testament I think, to the broader opportunity set there. And the second dimension is really from a client perspective. How can we help bring 
hopefully really high quality solutions to an investor base here in Asia. And we have had a presence in Asia for a very long time and continue to serve clients, but continue to expand, especially as we continue to see wealth accumulation and demographic trends that would support both capital markets, but also savings and things like that, where we can help from an asset management perspective. So really exciting opportunity set that we continue to invest in. And then, you know, I think it's interesting from sitting in Hong Kong the past four years and then coming back to California in the U.S., an issue like China is probably one of the only bipartisan issues that we have that we can agree upon in the country. And so it is one that I think that there's a lot of tension and certainty. But when you speak, I think, to CEOs and to clients, for the most part, a lot of them continue to see that it's an important strategic opportunity set they want to be a part of over the long term. One thing that certainly I have noticed myself coming out to Asia, and that was in early 2016. Before I came out, I thought I had an idea of what was going on here, having spent some time in financial markets before that. But to really understand the region, to really understand countries like China or India, it's so important to spend real time here. And we've both had our fair share of that. I remember bumping into you at the airport in, in Beijing. But what it's done to me is that understanding the region better, I've become even more of an Asia bull. And really that's also increased over the past years, including in the more recent volatile environment. And a lot of this is really macro driven, right? It's Asia outpacing the rest of the world when it comes to growth. And that is a multi-decade trend that's playing out. There's the emergence of the middle classes. We've seen how powerful this is in China, where that has already firmly started, but in most countries in Southeast Asia, whether it's Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, others, I think we're only just starting to turn the corner. And so if there's one thing that is coming out of some of the recent volatility, I would say over the last nine to 12 months, is that from a global investor perspective, East is no longer predominantly about China. China remains important, but we've seen these swings of capital also from, or reallocations of capital from China into uh, the broader region like Southeast Asia. Kim, when global investors think of Asia, they often focused on China, as Paul just touched on. We've seen this week China's economy could struggle to register positive growth. What if it does falter and doesn't come back? Which Asian market do you think would be the prize for investors? Well, there's a lot of good options, right? You have a country like Vietnam who is able to take advantage of some of the supply chain disruption that might come away from China. That's an exciting one. I think some of the other countries that are probably less dependent on commodity importers and China in terms of trade would obviously do a lot better. I mean, South Korea is interesting, semiconductors and things like that, that will position them very, very attractively. So I think there's a lot of really exciting growth stories and you have market economies that are developing at such a rapid pace. And again, I know we've said it before, but just the emergence of a, a middle class them who is saving and investing and has capital to put to work. Those are really the key ingredients for a really robust market environment. And then, you know, to your point about Singapore, Singapore has so much going for it. And from a global investor perspective or for people who want to put headquarters in different parts of Asia, you know, just the trust and the confidence in the legal system and the ability to transact from a global stage is a really 
important attribute that I think a lot of global companies and investors will continue to really appreciate. Yeah, especially that trust and, of course, governance. Paul, would you like to follow up on that? I actually want to come back to the earlier comment that you made. Because I think the opportunity set across Asia, across different markets, is absolutely not mutually exclusive. And the notion that China will not come back, China will come back strong. And there's no question, they're not going anywhere. But with that, and by the way, if and when that plays out, it's only good for the other countries in the region as well. And so we look at, again, the overall opportunity set, and a lot of that moves in lockstep from my perspective. No, absolutely. The trust factor is very important. I think that's especially the case for overseas investors that are looking at the distance at Asia. For us, the key thing is how do we make it as easy as possible for global investors to invest in and manage risk across Asia? And the legal system is an important factor there. The ease of access. And on that note, we've more and more liquidity in our late night trading sessions. That's more suitable to Western market participants. We at SGX are attracting more and more trading members from overseas. We have our own offices in the US and Europe, out of which we interact directly with end investors. All of that plays to making it as easy as possible for global participants to play across the major markets and asset classes in Asia. Kim, talk about ASEAN opportunities further for investors in the US. Interesting case study for us is we had launched a Asia high yield credit strategy in the region a couple of years ago. And we thought that the demand obviously initially would be from Asia. There's a strong kind of home bias and recognition appreciation for the asset class. And we at the time weren't sure about broader global demand because we hadn't seen those flows quite yet. And it's been so interesting over the course of the last couple of years that the investor base has actually steered even more towards non non-Asian investors, so European investors, Latin American investors, appreciating the opportunity set and integrating it into their asset allocation. And that's a broad basket of companies across Asia that are into that opportunity set. So I think that it's a bellwether for the fact that people see the growth story for the longest time, credit and bonds in Asia, people didn't feel like they got sort of paid for the relative value vis-a-vis other developed markets. And I think that there's real value there and a real strong growth story in many of them underpinning that. And I think a lot of investors are appreciating that and allocating for the first time in many cases. Paul, just moving away from ASEAN, I guess, towards South Asia, India, talk about the opportunities there. I think uh, India is incredibly exciting. Things that we've seen play out in China will ultimately also be relevant in Asia. The challenge with a lot of these markets still for global investors is the level of comfort people have to operate directly onshore in these markets and how easy it actually is to operate onshore in these markets. And that's where I see still the opportunity, the major opportunity for us in in Singapore is to be that bridge to provide offshore investment and risk management opportunities for the major equity indices for the currency. And that's what we're doing. In India, I think we're probably a step further in the 
collaboration onshore with the market structure provider. So we're working together with the National Stock Exchange of India to develop a connect in Gift City. That is an offshore venue, but located in India from where we will continue to trade and offer our nifty product suite. And Kim, if you could just share a little bit more, I know you've touched on this, but just from an investment management's point of view or PIMCO's point of view on the role, but also the importance of some of those offshore hubs and the growth of those offshore hubs. I think it's really important, again, both for an investment perspective and then for our business and for our clients. And so we've actually expanded over the course of the past couple of years into other markets from putting boots on the ground in China We've built an office in Taipei. We have offices in Singapore and Hong Kong. And so we just think that it's important from an investment perspective to be close to the companies and countries that we invest in and be able to sort of actively engage with them so that we can source relative value and strong alpha ideas for our clients. So I think that presence and that boots on the ground is very, very important. And it's also then important to be close to clients because we understand there's some global challenges and themes that they might be worried about or be trying to achieve in their asset allocation, but then there's really local nuances. And we find in some cases, the asset allocation is maturing, right, in terms of demographics and individual investors and really fleshing out the asset allocation that might be a bit more immature than than other parts in the world. And we think we have a strong role to play there in terms of educating on fixed income and the role that it can play in portfolios. Income more generally is something that I think a lot of investors around Asia really appreciate. So for us, that's a global value proposition to local investors here. And then on the investment side, it's taking the investment opportunity of Asia and transporting it back to our global clients beyond Asia. The idea of being closer to clients in China specifically, I would say three years ago, amongst global investors and banks, there was a lot of optimism about their ability to actually be onshore in China. I think this seems perhaps more complicated today, but at the same time, you cannot ignore it. You have to be in China, as you said. People remain very committed to the China business. Where do you see this going, let's sort of say the next five to 10 years, and how do you navigate that complexity of how to operate directly onshore in China versus through offshore centers, as Justine just mentioned? No, I think it's a big challenge. And I think it's going to be, again, a bumpy ride, probably. No one denies the strategic importance of China, and no one wants to be short China. So I think those are the fundamental tenets. And so I think that that makes you stay the course across a couple of different dynamics. So for example, I mentioned we built a small business in Shanghai. We continue to invest in there and boots on the ground. I mean, to your point, Paul, you've got to be there to learn how the market operates and learn what the preferences are to be able to respond. It's really impossible to do if you're not sitting there and understand the dynamics. And then on the investment side, you know, we continue to see markets evolve and we need to build our expertise. We have a lot of humility, I think, with respect to going into China, that for us, there's a lot of large entrenched asset managers who have really big businesses where they're looking at local credit and corporations. And we just don't have that same kind of acumen or footprint quite yet. So we're developing it over time. And it's something that 
we want to continue to focus on. So I think being cautious, having humility, and playing the long game in China is probably the blueprint that we're working off of. As you say, you've got the boots on the ground in Shanghai, and we all know you need to be there physically to maintain relationships and make new relationships as well. It's a whole lot easier. In five years' time, Kim, will you see a greater presence for you then in other parts of China? Perhaps, yes. Again, on the investment side, we would want to have more kind of credit analysts and credit research who are covering local companies. That's definitely an aspiration. I think we see opportunities in private credit, so along those similar lines, potentially, as well as the real estate market, too. So those are areas from an investment capability perspective that we would like to continue and be able to export to our global clients so they can have access to that important economy. And then the client base there, I mean, obviously you're looking at a huge wealth management arena and one that is going to continue to grow, continue to save, continue to invest, to be able to provide solutions from them is, I think, going to be really quite critical. That's where you need capital controls to come down and certain things to open up a little bit more for us to have a clear line of sight into how we can better serve that market. Let's switch topics now to digitalization and ESG. Now, digital assets. Kim, I'm going to go with you first. Who really should take the lead when it comes to digital assets? And I can see you grinning now. Government directed versus a truly decentralized Web3? Oh, gosh, it's so hard. Well, I think the regulators are going to be involved whether we like it or not. So I'm not, <laughs> sure it's a, I'm not sure it's a choice. And we hear a lot about that, especially in the U.S. So we're closer to it here. And we hear that a lot of it is coming. So I think it's going to be top of mind for a lot of people. And obviously, the recent events where you've got some volatility in some of the players and some expectations that have been different in terms of the results, that's just going to, I think, be a catalyst for perhaps more government regulation than less in this space. I would agree with that. Clearly, the heat has come off a fair bit in recent months, but it's equally clear to me that whether it's in the crypto, the broader DeFi space, or blockchain applications in financial markets and market structures space, that that's not going to go away. It remains a fluid situation, however, and for sort of established players like the big global investors, the financial institutions, us included, it's easy to take a call as to which direction this is going to go and where you're really going to invest with confidence. I think some of the folks that would have entered into this space with a lot of confidence five years ago and spent a lot of money on it may have gone into the wrong direction. For us, this is about following developments very, very closely, of course, and we are selectively building, investing and partnering in the space. That includes our own digital assets platform that we are building called MarketNote. This is initially focused on the fixed income space to optimize issuance, depository, and asset servicing flows using smart contracts, distributed ledger technology. We recently acquired a currency platform, which is our subsidiary now called MaxTrader. They offer spot crypto trading functionality. We invested minority stakes in certain ventures like DBS's Digital Assets Exchange, as well as ADDX, that is a, a pretty successful Singapore private capital platform that applies tokenization to a variety of underlying assets. And longer term, I also see value in offering crypto derivatives. You know, it's close to our heart and core capabilities. It has the advantage that it operates in the regulated space. As Kim said, regulation is going to play an important role in this, and there will be a convergence on it. 
But when it comes to crypto derivatives in itself, it still uses conventional market infrastructures with just different underliers. So the question then is, is it far fetching enough? And you also want to make sure that you differentiate with propositions. So it's still early days. We're not quite there yet, but we continue to follow this pace very, very closely. But probably better than maybe, what, 12 months ago, Paul? Absolutely. I mean, this is only accelerating and this is not going to go away. It will become more and more important and it is pretty fundamental for our competitive position going forward as well. And Kim, any tangible initiatives coming out of PIMCO's Digital Assets Working Group? Sure. One thing I thought was really interesting is I think it remains to be seen how institutional investors are integrating digital assets into their portfolio and what role they expect them to play. We recently had one of, I think, a thought leader in this space with a large U.S. public pension plan who has been an early adopter of this. And we asked them, how are you thinking about this? And they said, look, we actually don't think about crypto or Bitcoin as a diversifier. We look at it as tech equity. So that was really interesting, right? It's more of an alpha play for them and less of a diversifier, which remains to be seen. And so what we're really focused on is we always like to, we're macro fundamental shop. We like to model things. We want to understand the relative value and pricing inefficiencies. And we love derivatives and lots of different ways that we can express things. And so we're really focused on how can we model some of these things and make sure that we understand how we can assess the relative value and therefore how we put them in portfolio. So that's at a top line level. We're using them really in a limited way today, mostly on a relative value basis where we're looking at sort of futures versus spot. And then also thinking about, they obviously have some great momentum properties. And so in our trend following strategies, they have a place there as well. So those are the things that we're looking at. I think some of the things that are super interesting, the tokenization point, I think is pretty interesting, particularly if you think about the private LP side and be able to create some liquidity there. So I think that's something that could be pretty disruptive and interesting. But I think above all else, we're really excited just from a business perspective about blockchain and the applications there from the entire value train about how we trade and how we settle and and how we operate our business. That could be really, really transformational. Yeah, and in the end of the day, what's leading all of this, and the same applies to the ESG theme and other themes that we'll talk about in a moment, but it comes down to what are our customers asking for. And a lot of these trends are super relevant for them. For us, and as an exchange, there's you know, huge benefits in generating true network and portfolio facts for customers. And so the question is always, how do you get more value out of the ecosystem? And that is by expanding into products that are relevant to our customers and market participants. It also, of course, means deepening liquidity in existing products. So a lot of this is about making sure that we can cater to the demand that is coming from the broader community that we deal with. Mm, Yeah, definitely. And in addition to those digital assets, as you touched on, Paul, what is also very important is ESG. I think globally now it's, it's really accelerated. It's an important theme here with SGX Group, positioning itself as a leading hub in Asia. Absolutely. One topic that came up in recent weeks is quite curious how poor performance has been for most ESG-themed indices across the world, with some actually having traded very much in line with technology indices. I think what that tells us that there's still a lot of work to do when it comes to 
definitions. What do we really mean by ESG? Turns out, and again, I started looking into this, the S&P ESG index actually has all major tech companies as their top holdings, and that's Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet. But on top of that, ExxonMobil is also one of their major holdings. So when we think about these challenges around definition and transparency, if that applies globally, it's even more relevant out here in Asia and more complex here in Asia. I think we're still behind, certainly behind Europe and the US. So we've got a lot to learn from that, but you need to start somewhere. And we see it as, I guess, our duty and also an opportunity to take a leading role in how this will be shaped. A lot of this is about shaping the policies going forward. Kim? Yeah, I think the point around definition, Paul, I think is the key point. I think if you go around the world, clients have different definitions, regulators have different definitions. And so we're in the nascency here and there's such an opportunity to shape best practice. I mean, I think that does start with a lot of the index providers and things like that and making sure that there is a consistent approach that a lot of people will subscribe to. But I think it's very early stages of that, which is interesting. And then you've got parts of the world in very different cycles of maturation or stages of maturation. And with obviously Europe leading the charge, Australia has obviously been at the forefront. The U.S. is catching up. And then you've got Asia, I think, who is really interested in this. And you've got people like MAS and Singapore and the SFC in Hong Kong really taking a hard look at what this could mean for investment products and definitions and regulation around all of this. So it's really quite exciting, but it also is pretty greenfield, for lack of a better term, <laughs> uh, because it's an opportunity for a lot of thought leaders to step up. And we think the same in terms of fixed income to be able to help shape how investors think about ESG and fixed income. But there are still issues, of course, around the world that could drag investors back into the hunt for returns with less regard for that, those sustainability options. And that includes issues relating to Russia, China and inflation. Paul, do you want to comment on that? Again, I think it comes back to how do we think about ESG more broadly, right? Is this as much about geopolitical concerns, about political concerns as it is about sustainability? And I think what we probably will see over time is that there's going to be a clearer distinction between what is E, what is S and what is G. But we're still pretty early days. What I actually think is very interesting in the fixed income space, Kim, I think PIMCO probably, I I think I read, has more than $630 billion of AUM already allocated to sustainable assets. So the bond side has really been leading in many aspects. So we've got, and also on SGX side, we've got a lot of green bond listings and the disclosure there has made much more progress than what we've seen for example, in the equity space. We've been teaming up with NASDAQ ourselves on a green bond database. And so there's a lot to learn from the fixed income space as to how this is going to play out in all our asset classes as well. I think that's super interesting, Paul. I mean, the green bond issuance and some of these direct sort of investments that are linked to ESG objectives, I think are definitely going to take shape. And then just more broadly, we're seeing a lot of clients who are integrating ESG objectives into their investment policy statement more holistically, which means that when we're talking about new business, they're asking us, okay, how are you going to integrate 
ESG factors into your investment process and how will that help you manage risk and seek out opportunities. So it's, it's much more at the forefront of discussions, again, at different paces around the world. But I think when we fast forward to the future destination of what ESG will be, I don't think we'll think about it as a bolt-on or a standalone strategy. I think we'll be thinking about how this is integrated into everything that we do, probably, in some shape or form. And that's what we should all be sort of planning for. From our perspective, I think two further areas that we're spending a lot of time in is A, the development of carbon credit exchange. It's called Climate Impact X. That's a venture that we are uh, developing together with Tomasek, Standard Chartered, and DBS. Early days here in Asia, but super important as you think about the climate transition and the objectives that, you know, in the end of the day, many of the countries have all around us here. So that's an important focus area. The other, I have referred to this earlier, I think on the equity side, we're still a bit behind, but I see huge opportunities there to build also on the listing side, a cluster of companies and ETFs in the sustainability space, um, whether it's renewable energies, EV cars, companies involved in energy transition, food and water sustainability. So many exciting companies that are coming out of this space, including in the region here. And so that's another big focus for us going forward. And talking about going forward, both of you, I'm going to ask you to gaze into your crystal balls now (laughs) and just ask you, first of all, Kim, in what ways can exchanges better help investment managers like yourselves, uh, PIMCO, and market participants succeed? Well, I feel like our crystal ball has been a bit hazy recently, (laughs) given everything that's going going on. But but no, exchanges, I think, serve a, a number of different things. I mean, Paul mentioned a lot of them. We like to trade a lot of different instruments. I mean, ours is about generating alpha, being really active. We need liquidity. We need depth of markets. And we want a lot of ways to express different relative value across different markets. And so that, I think, portends a broader set of asset classes represented in different vehicle types with liquidity for a large manager like PIMCO so that we can provide that access to our clients. So I think you're making lots of strides there. I know there's a lot of work on ETFs and other vehicles, benchmarks. I think the carbon initiative is really, really interesting. And so these are all very much aligned with what we're seeing from clients and what we'll need to be able to deliver for them. From my perspective, I think this comes back to my core optimism for Asia market cycles come and go. But if you take a long-term view, I really believe that we're staring at a generational opportunity for Asia as a whole, but especially also for Southeast Asia and Singapore. So being there with the right assets for people to trade in with a trusted platform is super important so that, again, we can increase the value of the ecosystem. We're right at the center of world's growth engine by 2040 Asia is expected to generate over half of the world's GDP. That's one and a half times today's contribution. So still a long way to go in the next uh, 17 years or so. With that, we continue to see very meaningful and continuous inflows of capital from the West to the East. And as I said earlier, Southeast Asia is turning a corner when it comes to innovation and progress as well. It's evidenced by the amount of successful companies that are emerging from many of the countries in the region here. So that leaves us well positioned to capitalize on this opportunity. 
I think we see this across all our businesses. In particular, I'm excited about what this will do for our IPO business. Pipeline there is stronger than it's been for many years. Many of the companies that are coming through now from the region are really new economy businesses, which tend to attract investor excitement. But in other asset classes, equally, there's still so much more that we can do in the fixed income space. Still early days in Asia, but it's, of course, a very, very big market. On the commodity side, we've been building out very successfully a number of products, but there's more that we can do as well. And, and in the end of the day, this all comes down to how do we get out better and more suitable products, contracts, asset classes for our global market participants to invest in. So lots of food for thought there and lots to look forward to. Just final thoughts, Kim, you, any hopes and wishes you'd like to add on to that? I would want to end on a note of optimism that I do think globalization is still alive and well. And as a large asset manager, to be able to traverse across global markets, to be active, to be flexible, which of course we're talking about all the things that SGX can provide to clients. I think that's a, a really big benefit and has staying power and it is the future. Yeah, I will continue on that note. I mean, for us, just further cross-border and global collaboration and connectivity is key and critical. In the end of the day, Singapore is still a fairly small country. And so our success depends on our ability to reach across borders. And I hope and believe that Singapore, given its, its pretty unique position here in the region, but also on the broader global scene, can play a role in breaking through some of these tensions that we've been seeing. And the fact that globalization is in reverse, in the end of the day, there's also very, very important forces that go against that. And I think that they will prevail in the long term. Kim and Paul, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks, Justine. Thank you, Justine. And thanks, Kim. Nice to see you, Paul. Thank you. You've been listening to episode three of our Thought Leadership podcast series, Growth Track, where we focus on growth opportunities across Asia. This episode featured Paul DeWin, Senior Managing Director, Head of Global Sales and Origination at SGX Group, and Kim Stafford, a Managing Director and Global Head of Product Strategy at PIMCO. I'm Justine Moss. Thank you for listening. 